This is Caught in the Act with Tim Clark. Ah, my name is Tim Clark and welcome back. They'll go into any court in any town or city on any day and within an hour the same word will have been mentioned in relation to one crime or another. Drugs. Every judge and magistrate sitting in a court in Western Australia today will likely either deal with a case involving drugs directly, pertaining to the product, or indirectly, involving the partaker of that product. Most of those cases will involve relatively small amounts, grams in bags, but more and more seemingly involve kilograms in sacks, and boxes and vans. And the odd one or two involve many hundreds of kilograms worth hundreds of millions of dollars, invariably arriving by sea from far-flung lands destined for WA's coastline. And then our streets, pubs and clubs, front rooms and bedrooms. A six-month-long investigation has scooped $52 million worth of methamphetamine off Perth streets. Police seized a staggering 900-kilogram shipment of cocaine. Three more men, including an Australian, have been charged over a billion-dollar drug discovery off the... Those who get caught with the major hauls are risking life in prison. But yet, so many still risk it to bring so much drugs into a state with a population that has 1.4 million less people than in Medellin in Colombia, the city where one of this city's Mr Biggs was recently arrested. So how? How do the drugs get here? Who? Who is sending them here and why? Why do they keep risking life in jail? Is it just the mega profits or is the gangster life still a viable career path? Joining me to break down and bag up some of these cases is Tom Percy one of the most experienced barristers working in Australia today. Thanks for joining us, TP. 40 years in this caper, and drugs never seem to go out of fashion. Hi, Tim. How are you? No, look, it doesn't go out of fashion, and I think it's just starting to gain a bit of momentum at the moment. I mean, you can't watch the evening news, can you, without uh, another mega bus, the police parading all this white powder in uh, in bags on TV. Uh, seemingly saying, look how clever we are, we caught these blokes. But the question remains, how many don't they catch? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like just some of the recent busts working through their WA courts from, from just this year. In August, 560 kilograms of cocaine allegedly sitting in a house in Calbarry, which prosecutors say came in on a bulk carrier. In May, almost a tonne of cocaine allegedly fished out of the bulkhead of another big ship, Dr. Quinana. In March, with three men arrested, having previously been rescued, clinging to an esky off the coast of Albany, that's a 330-kilogram cocaine haul. And in the same month, our police were part of an international flying squad that allegedly launched the biggest bust of all. 2.4 tonnes of cocaine worth a billion dollars destined to come here before distribution everywhere. So... Tommy, all those busts surely show we're winning the war on drugs, right? No, really? <laughs> <laughs> You've got to be joking. I mean, that's the tip of the iceberg. It really is. I mean, uh, WA is a great place to import drugs into because the coastline is so vast. You just have to have a look at the varying locations that uh, those drug busts uh, were 
are done and uh, just go further north. There's miles, hundreds, thousands of miles of beaches where you can offload as much as you want if you're so minded. Mm. And the police have basically said, admitted, it's impossible to police that whole coastline. And there are so many little inlets for little ships and boats to to wobble in on. Um, But notably there, a lot of those bigger busts recently have been cocaine whereas you know in 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 recent years it's it's been meth that's coming in what, what do you think's driving that is it just the price or is uh, is is like fashion is you know the 80s coming back so the you know the the, the drug of choice of the 80s is also coming back what, what do you think behind that no look i've never been told anything about that uh, as to why the reason behind it but i still think you would find that there was an enormous amount of meth coming in mm-hmm. Uh, I think they can probably make meth more easily domestically here than you can make cocaine. So mm. that probably has to come in from somewhere else, um, whereas the meth, you know, they have meth labs here all over the place and uh, that can be done easily here. But I wouldn't have thought there's any change in fashion. Uh, methamphetamine is still very, very popular and used very, very widely. I did a case recently where a chap was actually caught on telephone intercept talking about how the the price of cocaine had gone through the roof during during COVID times because it was so hard to get because of the supposed um, hard border there at Eucla, and so any product you could actually get in was uh, was worth a lot more because you know people still had uh, their their weekend habits, but uh, it was just harder to get hold of. I mean, profits always drive these enterprises at, at their heart, don't they? Yeah, look, it's just a question of scarcity. And, uh, you know, sometimes uh, there's a lot around, sometimes there's not. And price does vary a bit. But uh, the COVID period was one which no one knew where the price was going. I think things have stabilised a bit now. But uh, in Western Australia, it's a very good market for drug dealers because the... Uh, because the penalties are so high here. Now, intuitively, you'd think, well, if we have very high penalties, very long sentences, higher than any other state, why would anyone deal here? Well, they really don't want to deal anywhere else because it's um, it's so precious and uh, they can get a lot of money for it. Mm. Now, of all the cases I've just mentioned, the oddest one of recent times, certainly that I covered, involved the most unlikely bit of Western Australia, the, the Abrolhos Islands. Uh, it's it's about 70 k's off Geraldton. It's a great fishing spot. It's beautiful. It's n- natural. It's it's pristine, really. But this case involved uh, wrong numbers, rotten weather, a yacht from Madagascar, a skipper from France, a crewman from Wales, and a whale which began the downfall of a smuggling plot, which was part pirates of the Caribbean, but more parts carry on cruising. It's understood WA police are close to charging a man they allege was a major architect of a $1 billion drug haul. The owners of this yacht chose a bad day to hit a reef. The alleged criminals already knew the gig was up. In 2019, a syndicate which was based in Thailand and Jersey put in train a plot to sail a yacht from Madagascar across the Indian Ocean with a mid-ocean stop along the way. That stop was to rendezvous with an Asian mothership, crewed by big blokes in black, armed with guns, so they could pick up the cargo. That cargo turned out to be a ton of top-grade narcotics, ecstasy, cocaine and ice. 
The yacht was skippered by a French national by the name of Antoine de Centre and his younger British crewmate, Graham Palmer. They were an odd couple who were on their way to flood WA with 380 kilos of cocaine, 344 kilos of ecstasy and 171 kilos of meth also stopped to watch a whale off the bow of their yacht with dissenter actually getting out his phone to film the spectacle. Unfortunately for him, he didn't stop recording when the whale stopped breaching and thus recorded what a prosecutor later told me was the worst butt dial in history, recording himself and his crewmate actually unloading the drugs. Let's have a listen. Take the, the top ones and put them inside before the other boat come. You mean? Huh? We have to put it inside before the other boat come. Wait, this is, are we, are we moving now, yeah? Yeah. Tom, uh, you've been defending uh, bad guys for um, many, many decades, but do you ever still get surprised how uh, criminals manage to get themselves caught sometimes? Well, there's sometimes an element of Monty Python about all of it, uh, Tim, <laughs> and uh, I think that one had had a lot of it. And, you know, sometimes you just wonder, how did you think you ever got were going to get away with this? <laughs> and I think the question you asked at the start of the program was, um, you know, why do they keep doing it? You know, given that we've got so such heavy penalties and uh, they're likely to get such long terms in jail. The answer to that is quite clear. None of them think they're going to get caught. Yep. They think the chances of getting caught are so remote that it's, it doesn't affect them at all. And I, you know, I never met anyone who uh, committed a murder, for instance, who uh, ever gave the slightest thought to being caught. Um, and drug dealers are exactly the same. Uh, if they did, they wouldn't do it. But uh, driven by money, they come up with the perfect plan or what seems to be the perfect plan. Getting caught is not in the equation. Yeah. And do you find that that's, um, that, that's a difference in thinking that, that, that you find regularly um, in the courts or have found regularly? That's, you know, if, if someone came up to me at, at the raffles tonight and said, mate, I've got this plan, right? We're going we're gonna to meet a ship in the middle of the ocean, stick a ton of drugs on board, um, float into the Abrolhos, and then give it to three blokes in a van. I mean, I would, you know, <laughs> you'd just laugh at them, but this is actually what these blokes did. And, and you know, it's, it's, it's one of the crazier plots, but, but not actually too out there when you've, when you've been doing it as, as long as you have, I suppose. Yeah, I guess a lot of the foreigners don't understand that uh, whilst the the uh, coastline is remote, that there are ways and means that people are likely to detect you. And they, they try to put out of the equation radio surveillance and uh, digital surveillance and things like that. Mind you, the chances of getting caught are not particularly good. Mm. And uh, it takes uh, just a certain type of risk-taking attitude. I mean, some people uh, still smoke and uh, we know what the, the damage there is and the likelihood of uh, that coming unstuck for you. Some people still uh, drink drive and we know that what the chances are. I mean, um, human experience is that some people are more prone to taking risks than others. Mm. And I think uh, they're the kind of people who uh, are seduced by a large amount of money and the risk suddenly becomes very secondary to them to the extent that it just doesn't exist and as a result they get swept up in these kind of plans and you know where they sometimes end up mm. um, and the blunders 
didn't stop there for 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 our um, our, our crew. After a seven thousand eight hundred kilometer kilometer voyage um, in brutal weather across the Indian Ocean, Dissenter actually did make it to the Abrolhos, and then he promptly fell asleep, leading to his yacht and its precious cargo running aground in the tricky, shallow waters around those islands. That led to panic, obviously, which was evidenced in messages sent to the syndicate leader, alleged mastermind British man John Alexander Roy, who was on the end of the phone in the UK. Meanwhile, the three men who were supposed to be picking up the drugs in the Abrolhos and taking them to WA, Jason Lassiter, Angus Jackson and Scott Jones, had also made their way to the islands on their own faster boat. But they also managed to get themselves run aground as well. So after the yacht had been found and abandoned, authorities began a major search and rescue mission. And with no crew on board, they thought the two or three or however many it might be, might be in serious trouble. So they eventually found Dissenter and Palmer on Burton Island, a tiny little rock in the middle of nowhere, if you look at it on Google Maps. But they were there, along with 40 duffel bags stuffed with the drugs hidden by rocks and seaweed. When the authorities saw them from the sea and the sky, Mr. Dissenter and Mr. Palmer tried to make a run for it. Where they were going to go, I have no idea, but they didn't even get that far because a large seal that was on the island actually reared up and stopped them running before they could get as far as they hoped they could. There was nowhere to hide, allegedly, with one tonne of drugs worth a billion dollars, 40 duffel bags filled with meth, ecstasy and cocaine. Tom, you've heard a few tall tales in your time, but this one has to be up there. Have you ever had a client of yours stopped by a large sea creature before? No, look, that's, <laughs> that's right up there with any story I've ever heard in 40 years in the game. And, you know, I, I still marvel about uh, just the incredible stupidity of uh, the whole enterprise <laughs> and the bad luck that they had too <laughs> yeah. as well. I mean, it's quite often a bit of bad luck that uh, brings these things about, but, you know, no crime's perfect and they've always got to weigh the luck factor into it because that uh, can be a determining factor in the end. Yeah. Now, this, this case did go to trial, and like on a, on a more serious note, it was a major trial. It went for a long time, took a lot of resources, a lot of barristers, a lot of um, legal minds went into um, some defences. Um, Mr. Palmer pleaded guilty. Mr. Dissenter eventually pleaded guilty. Um, the skipper, Mr. Dissenter, was eventually jailed for 26 years with a non-parole period of 18 years. His true mate got 22 years with a minimum of 15 to serve and the three men in the other boat um, they are all now serving between 33 and 25 years in prison and as a, a side note police have interviewed mr roy in the uk twice and have said they intend to charge him once he has served a long stretch for a separate major drug bust in the on the other side of the world so they're, they're huge uh, terms, like top of the Waza um, prison terms, Tom, with general de deterrence always one of the prominent factors. Just, just tell the listeners what the, the, the general deterrence um, argument is. Well, 
you know, we used to think when you go to the jail, the people doing the long sentences were the murderers, but they're not. They're the druggies nowadays. And uh, the theory is, so it goes, uh, is that uh, if you give enough people long enough sentences, then it deters other people from crime. And uh, that's what we call the doctrine of general deterrence. And it's written into the laws here. They have to, every judge sentencing someone has to take it into account that the sentence they pass will send a message to others who might be minded to commit a, to commit a similar offence. But uh, in recent times, and I'm, I'm talking the last uh, decade or so, it's come under a lot of uh, scrutiny as to whether it actually works. And most of the evidence is that it doesn't work because, um, as I said before, most people don't think they're going to get caught. So it doesn't matter what sort of sentences other people are getting. If you're not going to get caught, it's irrelevant to you. Mm. And... Uh, you know, quite frankly, after five years, who will have heard of uh, of any of these guys? Who will know about them? They, they just drift into the prison sentence and some probably die there. Mm. Uh, so, you know, a lot of judges have recently started to query just how effective this is. There must be other ways that we can uh, tackle the war on drugs rather than just jailing our way out of it because... You know, the war on drugs started with uh, you know, Richard Nixon in the US in mm. about 1966 mm. when he said, we're going to have a war on drugs, it won't be long till we win it. Well, it's still going and uh, quite frankly, we lost. Mm. So, as you, you just said, those big terms don't seem to be p- putting people off because all the major um, busts in inverted commas that I detailed at the at the top of the podcast have a- actually happened after, since. Um these uh, this crew was actually sentenced. So, if if those big terms aren't putting people off, what what do you think would? What, is is there anything that's going to ever you know stop that one percenter um, mentality trying to trying to trying to beat the system and, and beat the authorities? Well, I don't know. I don't know if it's one percent. <laughs> it's a lot higher than that. <laughs> but I think uh, you know if you go back to uh, four years ago, I think when John Quigley announced to the world that. By introducing life imprisonment for 28 grams, I'm not talking 28 kilos or 28 tons, 28 grams, mm-hmm. it would stop the drug dealers in their paths. And uh, he said, his word were, we will cut the head off the snake. Mm-hmm. Well, the snake's still out there and the head's still well and truly attached <laughs> and it's breeding at a rapid rate of knots. So uh, there's got to be a different approach. It's all to do with education. It's to do with uh, with treatment. Now, I think what the countries that have been the most successful in sorting out their drug problem are the people who attack demand, not supply. Now, it's all very well for us to get all the suppliers and the dealers and everything like this. But what you've got to do is stop people wanting to use drugs. And if you can curtail that, even 10%, you'll see a correlative uh, reduction in the amount of people who want to supply it because the market goes out of it. It's a bit like cigarettes. Um, we, uh, you know, When I was a kid, brought up in a pub in Kalgoorlie, everyone smoked. I mean, 90% of the people smoked, and they chain-smoked all days long. Now, you go to that same pub uh, you know, 50 years later, no one's smoking. No one's smoking at all. And we fixed that without putting one person in jail. Mm. So the idea is that you've got to have education, you've got to promote the damage that it does, you've got to treat the people who have a problem, and eventually you'll slow down demand. At the moment, governments just think, oh, well, we'll take the supply. No one's ever put anyone in jail for smoking uh, methamphetamine. It's only possession and dealing it that actually attracts the penalty. So uh, I think we've attacked it the wrong way around. And unless we want to get the same sort of thing, just let's just pretend. 
that by putting people away, more and more people for longer sentences that will sort the problem out. But I can tell you, it won't. Mm. Uh, it also struck me when I was listening to the sentences of Mr. DeSanter and Palmer and, and you know, watching them trudge away down the steps at the district court there. Uh, general deterrence is, is supposedly for, for all of us, but the, they're not from Western Australia. They're not, they're not even from Australia, but they're now going to spend a, a, a large proportion of their adult lives sat in a West Australian prison. Do you think that's the way it should be done or should they be um, allowed to serve their sentence nearer their families? Well, I think uh, there is uh, an international exchange of prisoners uh, legislation. It's not widely used Mm. and there's a transfer of prisoners uh, facilitated under Commonwealth legislation. I I think it's probably better for their own rehabilitation if they uh, get sent back over there. Mm. Uh, But usually they're not. And as you say, they're foreigners. I mean, it's not as though they've got a wide circle of friends there who'll be trembling in their boots as a result of the sentences passed. Mm. No one will know about it, mm. really. Um, half the lawyers in Perth wouldn't know about it. So, you know, in terms of sending a message, it's ridiculous. The other one is, you know, like the Asian drug traffic. Some of those don't speak any English. So, mm-hmm. how the word's going to get out in Western Australia uh, that uh, what sort of sentence they got? Uh, most people just uh, take no notice of this. Uh, a lot of it doesn't make the TV. Uh, a lot of it doesn't make the newspapers. So what sort of uh, general deterrence is actually going on and the effectiveness of it is open to question. Mm. Uh, it sometimes feels to me like, you know, it's a bit of an auction of, of you know, how how much how much drugs can we seize? You know, the 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 largest, suppose, you know, the, the headline of the largest seizure in, in West Australian history. I think it's been written about t- 10 times in the last um, five years. And uh, as you really? say, the police do, um, you know, well, they, we actually call them show and tells in the industry. They, they, they lay the drugs out on the table and lay the cash out on the table and it makes great vision for 30 seconds. But as you say, it doesn't seem to be having an impact on, on those that are determined to, um, to deal in those, in those figures and numbers and, and substances. Well, I think as we said before, look, uh, that's meant to say, look at us, we're getting on top of the problem. Mm-hmm. We're fixing, sorting it all out. These blokes are not getting away with it. But, you know, it's a tip of the iceberg thing. And I'd suggest to anyone listening to this, every time you see one of those show-and-tells on Channel 7 or 9 or whatever it is, uh, just think, that is the absolute tip of the iceberg. Mm. Um, In terms of defence strategies, if if you had been, um, you know, uh, this one had come across your desk a, a few years ago and, and your client is, is, was determined to, to plead not guilty. What, what would you how, did you... how do you go about sort of planning or strategizing what a, a trial might throw at you and, and what you might uh, throw up as, a, as an argument? Well, I think that uh, depends on what your instructions are, what, mm-hmm. you, what your client's uh, story is you don't sit down and say, well, this amount of drugs come in, what will we say? How can we defend this? Uh, you've got to find out what the what the person says. I mean, they said, we didn't know about this. We thought we were importing a different uh, legal substance or we were forced to do it. You know, you might have a defence of duress. Mm-hmm. I've seen that run from time to time that people were forced to do it in threat of their life. Some people say they thought they were bringing in you know, nicotine or tobacco or something like that. They didn't know what was in the bags. Um, they, they thought they were 
doing something else. Uh, you know, there may be many uh, ways in which uh, these cases can be defended. It depends what the person's uh, case is, and they will tell you that. So uh, I think it's generally wrongly thought that lawyers come up with these defences. It's not that mm. the client comes up with the defence, the lawyer just articulates them in court. Yeah, and that's a, that's a common misnomer, isn't it, that someone knocks on, on your chamber's door and sits down and says, how are you going to get me out of this? So, you know, what, what story are you going to come up with? Whereas it's actually, well, it's not actually, it's always uh, nice to meet you. Uh, we've been presented with a set of facts. What do you say about them? Um, and then go from there. That's right. I mean, you just need to say, well, what do you say? Mm. Fortunately, by the time they uh, get to me, they've also they've always got a solicitor mm-hmm. involved. So uh, the the preliminary uh, questions have always been asked. I mean, sometimes you're asked to put uh, your own touch to it as to how you can best run that angle and what evidence to call and uh, how to deal with it uh, in the court. But by and large, the basis of the case theory is already distilled by the time it gets to uh, the council who'll be appearing in the court. Mm. Okay, I'm going to um, get you to open your um, massive uh, filing cabinet inside your head and ask you some of the strangest cases that you've ever um, been uh, briefed on. Um, no names, no pack drill, but can you, uh, can you unveil a, a couple of the weird ones that you've had to, uh, had to defend over the journey? It's a pretty ordinary question without notice. Sorry, <laughs> mate. I, I, remember I, I remember I did a case up in Geraldton once. There was a, a situation where uh, the uh, uh, two drug junkies were asked if they'd be involved in killing a bloke because he was a witness in a, in a court case mm-hmm. uh, against X. So X said to A and B, look, if you can get rid of this guy, I'll, I'll give you some drugs. And uh, they formulated a plot to lure him to their uh, caravan park uh, and they were given a couple of ounces of, um, well, a couple of grams of uh, LSD or something like that. I think it was heroin in those days to use on him to make him unconscious and uh, then uh, dispose of him. But while they were waiting, they used all the heroin themselves. (laughs) (laughs) So they didn't have any left when the bloke turned up for his appointment with them. So they had to kill him with a hammer. Um, and <laughs> Sorry, that, that left blood everywhere around there on the, on the carpet in the, uh, in the caravan annex. So they thought, well, we'll get this. They thought they wouldn't wash it down. So they actually cut it out you know, in a zigzag fashion and then put it in a bin. And so when the police come here, they thought, oh, this is, that's pretty interesting. This is a zigzag pattern <laughs> cut out of the carpet. Uh, <laughs> And it wasn't long before they found the part, uh, which was uh, that, this in the early days of, of DNA. And of yeah. course, uh, they uh, were able to match the DNA on the on the carpet to uh, the deceased, even though they didn't find him. I think they they'd actually put him in a boat and take him out to sea. But it was really you know, Keystone Cops kind of uh, theatre as this case <laughs> unravelled. <laughs> and oh no I, I you don't want the verdict do you no I don't ask I don't ask and I won't uh, because it was as you say a, a, a question without notice um, it does bring me on a, a, just off the top of my head though that we were laughing then and it, obviously that's a very serious situation for the, all the people involved I've always found that um, lawyers and journalists share 
that sense of humour that is slightly dark to get them through their the, the dark things that they had to have to sometimes confront in their jobs. Um, have you have you found that over over your career that um, humour, even in in some very strange and, and sickly situations, has uh, has helped get you through? I think so. And look, I, I tell all my young students and graduates that you've got to have a laugh at this. If you can't have a laugh, you won't survive in this game. And um, as you say, people sometimes say, "How could you laugh about something like that?" At the end of the day, there was a, there was a there was a homicide involved. And but I think you know, even the clients get to have a laugh at themselves sometimes. And I've, I've seen some of them. Uh, I've had a laugh with them about the sort of silly way that they've gone about uh, thinking they could get away with things or trying to cover up their tracks. And you know. I think, uh, you know, they sort of survive by having a laugh at themselves on occasions as well. Of course, not all of them do. Some of them, it's deadly serious and they, they can't uh, can't ever see the humorous side of it even for a moment. But I think lawyers, and I assume you guys too, because um, you're there every single day. We're there most of the time, but you're there every single day covering a variety of cases. You've got to be able to make light of it at some level sometimes, even if it's a long time after the event. Yeah. And as I say, when you've got a butt dial and a whale and a seal involved, then it's uh, it's really hard not to uh, not to laugh at how uh, the Abrolis crew managed to get themselves caught and locked up for a long, long yeah, time. Look, if, if if someone wrote a novel about that, they you, that you'd lose the reader because it would seem to be so fantastical. You know, they say oh, this could never happen in reality. But as I say, truth sometimes stranger than fiction. Yeah. Well, I, I think you're in the middle of your second one, aren't you, Tom? So you can you can borrow. Yeah, just going through it. Hopefully, I can get that ready by the end of the year. Well, we'll we'll do a plug. So Tom uh, launched his first fiction uh, last year. I think it's called The Curate's Egg. It's a cracking uh, page turner. I was lucky enough there to to be at the launch with some of uh, Perth's uh, great and good and. Uh, as I said on the night, I was looking for, already looking forward to reading the sequel. So uh, um, get up, hurry up, and, and finish it, Tom, so we can all uh, jump back in. Well, if you can get some of those crims to stop uh, inputting so much drugs and give me a bit more time on my own, uh, Tim, we might be in the race to get it done a bit quicker. All right. I'll have a word. But uh, thanks for your words this morning, Tom. Always great to uh, have a chat. Okay, mate. Good Cheers. on. I'll see you soon. Ta da. So thanks again for joining us at Caught in the Act. You can find us on thewest.com.au or wherever you get your podcast and there'll be some links to the stories I wrote about the Abrolis crew there as well if you want to do a little bit of a deeper dive. If you have any questions, you can email them to us at caughtintheact at wanews.com.au and please remember, if you want to know what's happening in court, don't get caught short. See you next time.